Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part seven of The Fountain of Youth, the final chapter in the series. Somewhere between the grunt of a meathead lifter and ogling the spanks on a passing lady, I realized that the fitness center is a daytime nightclub. The college house parties and bar crawls moved on to the suburbs where the cover charge is a monthly fee. And rather than drunken people grinding on each other, no one talks or interacts due to the headphones they're wearing. Mostly, it's a place to be seen and admired, like a zoo, except these animals do not stare at the visitors and chew their cud. These animals stare into mirrors and brood. So Socrates hung out at a gym, but he didn't perform any miracles. And I don't care how much Socrates could deadlift, it would still not be considered a miracle. Socrates' church was the gym. And Jesus' church was the church. So this meant that I was dedicating more time to Socrates' holy place than the holy place of the Creator God. I had replaced one goal with another. I had replaced one prideful thing with another and another. And to quote Kurt Vonnegut, so it goes. This realization came after I found out that marathons and triathlons would neither save me nor satisfy me just like drinking hadn't solved anything, so it goes. Endurance racing hadn't done it either, so it goes. Self-destruction and self-improvement were both fool's gold, and indifference was just bouncing around in the middle, and after enough time, even less satisfying. I really thought that pursuing massive amounts of mileage in running, biking, and swimming would cure my sickness. I mean, reading Born to Run made running sound like a map to the fountain of youth. An ultramarathoner named Dean Carnassus had said, if you want to run, run a mile. If you want to experience a different life, run a marathon. If you want to talk to God, run an ultra. So I tried all that and found out after, an, after the Ironman race that I was like Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler, still searching, still searching. You can see these indications of this search everywhere today um, in so many ways coming out. The realization was a signal and it was yet another signal that merit and effort would not save me or bring me rest or peace or freedom at all. But I still enjoyed working out even as I was awakened to the need for prayer and continual conversion, daily conversion to Christ. Like hitting bottom for drinking and self-destruction. Uh, the completion of an Ironman was like hitting the ceiling for self-improvement on the other side. And both of these experiences were like guardrails to point me in a different direction at last toward surrender and letting go of any attempt to steer my way to heaven. So with this awareness, I still enjoy going to the gym. There's a hilarious book called The Swoley Bible written by a weightlifter who makes videos to mock the culture of modern fitness centers. He calls the gym his Church of Iron, uh, where he goes to get swole, S-W-O-L-L, -L, swole, and to take selfies in the mirror and to drink these dubious bro science supplements. He talks about doing reps for Jesus. So as I was dying laughing reading this book, um, but again, I, was, I started pausing in my laughter whenever I realized that this comedian's take as only comedians can do, revealed the truth of what these modern buildings represent, these fitness centers. They are modern cathedrals of devotion to the self. There's no denying that's what they are. Uh, the mirrors on every wall are a not-so-subtle indicator 
Um, if you have mirrors everywhere, what's it about? It's about you. Uh, there are no grains of wheat dying in the gym, or if they are, it's very abstract and hard to see. So no, this is the adult playground where we are looking for those waters of Bethesda. Um, we're looking for that, that fountain of youth in the drinking fountain, and, and then we're pouring these mysterious powders into the water to plump up our muscles and elongate our telomeres. You know, we want to live forever. This is where my character with the cursed bananas, going all the way back to part one, where she would be spending most of her day. And like my fictional character, I'm at the gym almost every day. The scary thing is that fitness can become a religion that basically replaces faith or actual religion. Uh, the only problem is f uh, fitness doesn't have any uh, liturgy or structure or rituals that are for the good of your soul. It's just for your body, maybe your mind, but not your soul. The scary thing, well, I mean, was I doing that? Was I replacing that kind of faith with this uh, pursuit of the self? And yes, I would say yes. If it came down to praying or getting 30 minutes of supersets in, I would go for the latter. I just would. And that's when I stopped laughing um, at the Swoley Bible because I was seeing that this, this comedy book, the Swoley Bible, was pointing out uh, it was how it had eclipsed the Holy Bible. So another layer of the onion peels away as I once again saw that rebirth must happen. So you're not just done being reborn sometimes. Uh, Nicodemus and I could probably go to coffee together, just like I said Eve and Little Red Riding Hood could, or Adam and Eve probably together since they, they could tell the story better. But maybe all four of us or five of us, Nicodemus, Little Red Riding Hood, myself and Eve would make a good little support group because we'd all have a lot to talk about. Uh, we all need to be reborn. I just don't have any talking animal stories yet, um, but who knows? Uh, in this world, we have the sacrament of baptism to be reborn, to, to enact the form of spiritual rebirth. We know that Jesus never needed baptism himself to remove sin. And when he goes to John the Baptist, John the Baptist protests saying, wait, I can't baptize you. And Jesus says, J do it. Just do it. I have to show these rebels how to return. You know, he's, he's going through baptism. This is one argument against Christianity. People say is, why did Jesus have to get baptized? Well, he basically, there's this brief conversation between the two of them where he says, you have to baptize me. And then, of course, the dove comes like down from heaven. And there's this um, thing that's so hard to explain. It's one of the mysteries of what happens at his baptism that I won't go into here, but you should read that. Um, so it's like, this is another thing where he's showing us how to live. He shows, he shows me a lot of things in various ways, but because I'm, I'm the stick-neft and voluntarily deaf person, um, and it just comes so natural to me, and I have to be shown repeatedly for some reason. But, okay, back to the grain of wheat and the fountain of youth and rebirth. Um, Jesus said he could take his life up or lay it down whenever he wanted. So he, so he chose when his hour had come, whereas Socrates was told by the state. Um, and that choice that he made, Jesus did, required this painful death of his earthly body and mind, where there, you know, um, every crucifix you see is a reminder of that. So the grain of wheat idea is powerful when you realize that the parable is about both the life of Christ and our own lives, but then Jesus goes and exemplifies this parable in his own life and in his brutal, brutal death. So nothing in history can compare to this declaration and his following through all the way to the end. He carries the suffering to the end 
in front of many witnesses. And, you know, when he says, like, by your endurance, you will gain your soul, you see this in his actual life. So uh, life and death. And this commitment is what makes him different from any other religious founder. So Socrates uh, fails to rise from the dead. To his credit, he never claimed he would. So we're not expecting him to. Um, even the apostles didn't really know what to make of it, obviously, when they started seeing him. And, uh, you know, Jesus chooses to die, to not live forever. And he's doing that in order to bear fruit for the rest of us. Uh, then you have not only the resurrection happen with Jesus, but also ascension and Pentecost. So ascension is 40 days, about 40 days after he dies, and Pentecost is 50 days after um, what always makes me do a double take on this Christian story is the levels of depth to this whole thing. Because if it were a lie, maybe you could get away with one thing. You know, maybe you could possibly get away with resurrection. But you cannot possibly get away with all of it together. It's just so fantastic. I mean, the incarnation alone is the greatest event in history. So you, maybe, maybe you could tell people the incarnation and people would believe it. Um, so if that were made up by like a crafty writer, they might have just stopped there. Uh, but they don't stop there. Then they add the resurrection. And so if you had the incarnation and, and like you said, he was God and he died and that was it. But now, no, they're not done. They add the resurrection. As, and as if that weren't enough, then you get the ascension. And when the Holy Spirit comes in Pentecost, uh, it's, it's just so much. And then there's the historical proof of these 12 uneducated rubes, really, from Galilee, um, spreading this, this whole message to the four corners of the world. And on top of that, you add in other things like the Annunciation and the Transfiguration or the Wedding Feast at Cana and the loaves and fishes and walking on water and the 37 miracles that are in the Gospels. And it's just so much. It's so much. Then you pack on top all of, of all of that the wisdom of the parables and the trial and the execution and there's just so much to invent and sell unless it really happened. And that's why um, I always, it's just, uh, it's, it's so hard to believe because it's, it's so compl complicated. Um, and through all of this, he shows us how to live. Like there's the words just are repeatedly giving good advice on how to not really um, follow our, our worst instincts. So Clearly, he has already shown us this metaphorical way to live and denying his self in, in the story of his life. And he lives out his faith like a child. He has this, um, this quality about him where his faith is so pure and his, his um, love is so real. So every gospel story shows him healing and helping other people. He's feeding them. He's weeping with them. He's visiting them. He's teaching, comforting um, saving people's lives. Uh, so we know he is selfless already in how he lives his life. But then he takes it even further. So he's shown us the first metaphor of the grain of wheat because his life is never about him. It's about the weak and the vulnerable and the meek and the persecuted. His ego doesn't even exist so he can live for others. Um, it's just amazing because he, he'll say something like, you know, I'm, he, I am, he says, I'm God. And then he goes and helps like uh, some leper. So um, he throws all of his chips in and he just shows us this, the message in case we miss the point, like literally and figuratively, he's doing it in multiple ways. And he does us 
literary types of favors so we can satisfy our need to try to unpack sentences and pour over words and search for hidden messages. And we can say, what does this word mean in Latin or Hebrew or Greek? And we can say, what does he mean in the context of this? Is this a metaphor or is it not a metaphor? The funny thing is, the funny thing about all of this is that the illiterate people understood this story much faster than people like me who need all this hand-holding to arrive at the obvious. Most of the first Christians probably couldn't read. And they always say that your education will actually hold you back. Your, um, if, you're, if you're wealthy, educated, any kind of privilege in this world, you're probably not going to get the point as fast. In fact, when he's on the cross, it's the people who are in front of him who get it. Um, it's, you know, his mother, Mary Magdalene, who's kind of portrayed as like this attic character, a centurion who's kind of a lowly Roman, and there's the, and then the Apostle John. I mean, there's no one of high importance there um, at the foot of the cross. So it's not the, the rich and powerful and the educated who understand it first. It's the people who just get it. Like, it's, it's, it's amazing. The things of this world hold us back from understanding. Uh, education almost works against you just as money does. Uh, so Jesus loses his physical life in order to gain eternal life for us all. He lives the spiritual life showing what it means to be reborn in this world. Reborn in this world. We have, we have both examples of the one in this world and when, he's, when he dies. Um, in the garden on the night before he died, this is the garden of Gethsemane, he suffers the same temptation to choose his human, human life over his divine life by praying, Father, if you are willing take this cup away from me, still not my will, but yours be done. Um, and then you say, what is this sentence about? What cup? I already talked about the cups, but you know, what's with the cups? The cup he's talking about here relates to the cup of sorrows, of suffering and death that we all have to drink. He shows us the desire to preserve life like those of us who want to find the fountain of youth or escape pain via drugs or alcohol or be seen as vigorous and smart and strong. We, you know, we can retreat, fight, flight. Um, there's another freeze, they say. You can fight, flight, or freeze. Um, now, this is a second place where I get the urge to interpret it, and it's like an itch that must be scratched, even though I'm not really qualified to do that. Um, Jesus knows everything. We know that. He knows he will die on the cross the next day. This is the most powerful scene in all of Holy Week to me uh, because of this ancient stru struggle, anxious struggle in the garden. Um, that's where I believe that the yearning for a life without pain invades and vexes him and his upcoming torture racks him with this anxiety in that garden. He's showing us this temptation is great even for him, even though he's fully divine and fully human. He wants to hide because his human self is afraid, so he's looking for a fig leaf. I'm probably already off the, I'm probably off the orthodox trail here with this, but um, you know, he's saying, is there any other way to handle this? That's like what he's wondering. And we can relate to him. That's why I think it's, it's so important is like when he's in the temple as a 12 year old and he has these words that you can see the fully human part. It's the same thing in this garden and um, the fully human side of Christ. We can see the human self wants to hide from God, but he's also fully divine. So he doesn't have that option, of course. Uh, so what does he do? He rejects his human desire and accepts the suffering by turning his will over to God, even though it opens him to the crucible of pain before dying the following afternoon. 
his human self wants to overrule the divine self. And that's kind of what happens in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Um, they are they are not subject to death. And so they they over they reject God. And then, of course, they invite death into the world. And um, but Jesus doesn't do that. He denies the instinct. He accepts this fate and he takes the correct action that Adam failed to take in the original garden. And it's funny to notice that there's a garden in, in both ends of the story in the fall and then in the this moment of redemption where he's deciding not to uh, rebel or reject what is supposed to happen. Um, but they both involve decisions to accept or reject God. So the difficult, difficult part here for me is that I wonder if Jesus is showing us the way how to deal with this, how to handle stress. And maybe, in fact, he's completely calm in his inner divinity. And I guess it doesn't matter to me in the end, because for me, just like his baptism, he's showing us how to live. He doesn't need to be baptized, but he's baptized. That's what we should do. Um, same with when he's stressed, when we're stressful, we should turn to God and pray, um, just like he does in the garden. So, in fact, this lesson on prayer to combat anxiety and mental pain is probably the greatest life lesson I've ever gained from religious faith at all. Um, so it doesn't matter whether Jesus's divine self was utterly calm in that garden or not. I'm not divine. So I, I will only know the human experience and in his actions to pray, to turn his will over to the Father. I see the answer key to literally every single sleepless night and how to how to walk with God, if you can, as best I, best I can understand what that means. So for a book, if you want a book about this kind of thing in real life uh, that knocked my socks off, um, it was the real life application of turning your will over to God. There's a book by this father, Walter Chizik, uh, called He Leadeth Me when he was thrown into Soviet prisons for 20, 25 years, solitary confinement, then work camps. Um, it's just an incredible story of doing that, of turning your will over every day. Uh, <clears throat> okay, imagine how difficult, I guess when I think of this him in the garden, imagine how difficult it would be to have the power to save yourself and choose not to use that power. So uh, this is this is Jesus living by example. You know, superheroes in comic books and the heroes of myth mythology, they die for various causes, but not like this and not for our sins, not like for other people's sins. Uh, the ability of Jesus to endure pain and humiliation during his trial and death while knowing that he could escape at any time or he could destroy his tormentors at any moment seems impossible for someone like me. Um, I can't even keep a proper fast for a day without eating some forbidden fruit. But instead of fruit, mine comes in the bowl of like cinnamon life cereal. So the great thing, realizing <laughs> this is the great thing, if you want to call it that, the great thing about realizing you are a sinner is that as soon as you have peeled away one layer of dirt, you find there is another layer. And beneath that are layers of lies that you can't even see yet, that you've told yourself. You, some people call them identity lies, something you've told yourself. Um, you turn back to God and suddenly see a new world, but you also begin to see how filthy you've gotten. So once you are in the light, you start to see the flaws um, and really the things that you didn't realize you were doing that were slowly covering you up in these layers and destroying you. It event, uh, eventually you come to find that the last layer cannot be removed. It's a permanent layer. It's part of you and it's called pride. So that layer cannot be removed. The body and soul we have go together. 
that's one important thing about Christianity. We don't say like the body is bad or the soul is good. Um, that's other religions, but especially uh, for Catholic faith, there's a lot about this, that the body is not, it's not bad by itself. I mean, sex is not bad by itself. Um, having a drink is not bad by itself. Um, the soul is not automatically good because it's spirit. So, um, but these body and soul go together, but there's a fundamental flaw shared between them. And that flaw is in the original skin, the original sin, and that cannot be removed or hidden. So in, um, you know, if you're trying to clean it all off, you're never going to clean it off. It's like, um, in the telltale heart with Edgar Allan Poe, he's trying to clean himself of it and he can't clean himself of what he did and it drives him insane. So you cannot clean it off. Like, it's with you and you're going to have it for the rest of your life, um, no matter what. And so what are we doing for this fountain of youth? The fountain of youth idea, um, we're looking for something and we're looking for something called paradise where we don't have to wash anymore. We don't have to fix ourselves. We don't have to um, age. You know, we don't have to feel stupid. There's, there's so many um, things that we want in that fountain of youth. Uh, but there's only one way to get to paradise here and hereafter. And that is not through our own effort or ability, no matter what corporations are selling you um, or what Disney story is telling you, um, or I would even add what the news media is like yelling at you. There's just no way to get to paradise by ourselves. There, there are so many paths to go astray, um, so many mirrors to look into. There's these cure-alls to drink. There's products to apply and buy, and there's especially ideologies to adopt now. But the only way to the fountain of youth is to throw out the map and stop looking for it and put all your trust in God. All he asks for is this, your entire mind, body, and soul. <laughs> so he asks for everything. Uh, the quote from John 12 is, whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there also will my servant be. The Father will honor whoever serves me. So that's words right from Jesus' mouth, and it's this, this great contradiction of whoever lo loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will preserve it. It's, it's such a contradiction. It's such an opposite way of what we think. That's why it's so unexpected, and that's why it's, you keep looking at it, and you say, what does that mean? Well, it means you have to give up your pride. You have to give up yourself and your pursuits here that are not going to give you what you think it's going to give you. So the happy ending for all these seekers is, is rather simple in the end. The peace, the peace we are looking for is not, um, for just speaking for myself, it's not in holding a published novel or for the wrestler movie. It's not in wearing a championship belt or um, like the, the black swan doing the perfect dance. It's not in having unblemished skin, like in my story of the woman with the bananas. Um, it's not in hearing that round of applause. It's not for a hunter like taking the trophy deer. It's not winning a state title or getting a college uh, scholarship. And it's not in being forever young. It's none of these things. Those are all the projected band-aids that we're, we're doing and we're covering up ourselves um, the restlessness has a solution. It's available. It's free. It's here now. It can be delivered today to anywhere and much faster than Amazon. They should make an infomercial about this. But 
Um, it goes like this. This is, this is what we're looking for. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. That's Jesus talking in Matthew 11. That's paradise. That's what we want. We want to rest and to be content and to be protected by the one who loves us the most, no matter what. We want to be loved, respected, feel safe, and that's what he offers. The funny thing is, in the end, the thing we thought we wanted is not what we wanted. We want to be free to rest and to return to being like a child. And so the fountain of youth is available. It has been available for 2,000 years. The kingdom of God is within you. Return to the faith of a child, exposed and vulnerable. We bring what little we have to him, and he provides the rest.